This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not figure of him that was to come. Now, we're going to break down on Sunday morning, so I'm kind of, kind of giving you the high-level overview right now. But there's an important word that we see here at the bottom of verse number 14. Adam was a figure. That word figure in the Greek is the Greek word typos, T-Y-P-O-S, which points us to typology. And so here we see uh, Paul very clearly pointing out that Adam is a type of who is to come, speaking of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if though the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto just death reigned by one, Muchness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the righteousness of the one free gift came upon all men to justification of life. For, and so if you, if you remember this morning, the opposite of justification is condemnation. We see that in verse number 18 here. Uh, the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, the righteousness of one free gift came upon all men to justification of life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So we see here uh, a a contrast between uh, Adam and what Adam did versus Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ has done. If you're looking there, you see a lot of similarities that Paul is playing off of there. One man brought condemnation. One man brought justification. One uh, One man brought death. One man brought life. And so we see here uh, the contrast that he's pulling behind those. So some people, when they look at typology, are looking for strictly one who looks like exactly like Jesus. For example, uh, you take a look at Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. We'll get around to Joseph in, in a little bit uh, later, weeks down the road. Uh, Joseph. But Joseph was a type of Christ in the fact that he came to his own, his brothers, and his own received him not. He was cast out and hated by his own brethren. Uh, He was sold into slavery. Uh, He was taken into Egypt and placed uh, in a prison. At the time that he came out of prison, he was the second in command to the king of the largest kingdom in the world at the time. And therefore, Joseph is a type of Christ. 
interesting thing about Joseph, we'll get to that later, but I'll just throw you a little nugget here as we go through. Joseph is one of the few people in the Bible that we don't have any listing of his sin. Uh, we can't see that, that Joseph did anything wrong. Uh, he ran from Potiphar's wife uh, when she tried to seduce him into adultery. He ran from, from that. And so we see that, that Joseph always had the righteous decision. Now, does that mean that Joseph was never a sinner? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that we don't have any record of anything that, that Joseph had done wrong, thus strengthening him as a, a type of Christ, if you will. But the problem with types is that types always break down. Uh, uh, um, Joseph wasn't second in command to God the Father, the way that Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Joseph was uh, second in command to the king of one of the most wicked, sinful nations at the time. So types always break down some, some way, but many times when people look at typology or they have a kind of a basic level understanding of typology, they're just looking for perfect pictures of exactly this and exactly something else. But it comes to typology, typology requires that we see the similarities of types that point us to Jesus, while at the same time seeing how short all of these fall from accurately portraying the greatness and the perfect and complete fulfillment of Jesus Christ. So again, we're going to look at typology sometimes and see Jesus Christ, and other times we're going to see these types and see these types actually break down because they can't point to the perfection of Jesus Christ. So again, we see Adam as the type of Christ, and obviously Jesus Christ is the anti-type, and if you're confused on what that means, listen to week one. We talked about types versus anti-types and uh, the Christological significance of those things. But here we see not how Adam was a perfect picture of Christ, but how Adam was a perfect picture of the opposite of Christ. Therefore, pointing us forward to someone who would come, who would be known as another Adam, believe it or not. Uh, Paul actually refers to, uh, to Jesus Christ as the next Adam and also as the last Adam. So, so Paul, again, is drawing back significance of what took place with Adam uh, in the book of Genesis to who Jesus Christ is. And so uh, we'll uh, dig through this over two weeks, uh, the uh, typology that we find in Adam. First of all, we see that Adam is a representative of the human race. Jesus is a representative of the Godhead. Now, again, what do we mean when we talk about Godhead? You could use the word Godhead, or we often use the word Trinity, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three equally God. All three have the attributes of God. All three of them separately are 100% God, yet make up the, the Godhead, as the Bible refers to it. That's a biblical word, or the word Trinity that we use as a non-biblical word to describe the idea of, of God existing in three distinct persons, yet is one. So as we look at this, Adam is a representative of the entire human race. The choice that Adam made had consequences for all human history for mankind. The decisions that Jesus Christ made on behalf of the Godhead have eternal ramifications for all mankind for all time. And so when we talk about Adam being the head of the human race, Jesus Christ being the, the uh, representative of the Godhead. If you're taking notes tonight down here, you might write down beside this federal headship. And right beside that word, caution. Okay. The idea of federal headship is this. G Jesus is a representative of the Godhead. Adam is a representative of the human race and, and humankind. And the decisions that they made had ramifications on all of mankind and all of the Godhead. 
So the decision that Jesus Christ made to offer his life as a sacrifice had ramifications for the Godhead. God now uh, opens up his fatherhood to Gentiles as well. The Holy Spirit now will come dwell in every single believer that accepts Jesus Christ as Savior while Jesus makes the atoning sacrifice necessary to bring us to the Father. Adam's decision to rebel against God meant now sin and death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And so these two men as representatives of uh, the, the two really entities, if you will, in this case here, can be described as the federal heads of this. Now, I had you write the word caution beside that because, again, it's always important that we define what these terms mean. When people say, do you believe in federal headship? The question I always ask is, what do you mean by that? Because sometimes federal headship can mean exactly what I, I told you. Uh, Adam is a representative of mankind. Jesus Christ representative of the Godhead. I agree with that. If this means that these men created distinct, unique covenants with God that rule uh, Christianity, our understanding of the Bible, and things like that, that leads to what's referred to as covenant theology, I would reject that definition of headship. Now, again, covenant theology, you think to yourself, well, the, of course there's covenants in the Bible. You know, there's a Noahic covenant that God won't destroy the earth. There's an Abrahamic covenant of land, seed, and blessing. And there's a Davidic covenant that David will always be the, uh, there will be a ruler from, from David's seed that will reign forever. Uh, who has a problem with covenants? I have no problem with covenants as they're defined in the Bible. Covenant theology deals with other types of covenants that we don't find explicitly enough to, to begin this redemption process with mankind and God in Scripture. It's tough to define that. But again, covenant theology takes some of these and builds a framework of the Bible uh, and arranges the Bible according to covenants that sometimes aren't really necessarily explicit in Scripture. And again, covenant theology can then lead to what's known as replacement theology. Basically, the Israel has been cast off by God, and God has now adopted the church as his bride and left the children of Israel as God's people. Uh, and God has said again and again, he will not divorce Israel regardless of their uh, disobedience against him. And so covenant theology can sometimes lead us down a rabbit trail that doesn't end up somewhere good. And so when I say things like federal headship, it's important that we define terms. And that's what we're talking about just explicitly in this framework here. Again, definition of terms is super important. Uh, for example, someone asked me, do you believe in the depravity of mankind? And the question I have for that is, what is your definition of depravity of mankind? One person's definition is, man is completely depraved and cannot save himself. Wholeheartedly, 100% endorse that. Man is so depraved, he does not have the opportunity to desire God, desire to be saved, or accept God of his own free will. I would reject that definition. I don't agree with that. I believe that God gives us the opportunity to be able to choose. Do I believe that man is completely sinful and can't save himself? 100%, all day long. Uh, and so it's important when we come to theological terms that we define theological terms. Uh, are you a child of God? What do you mean by that? And so, again, when we come to this idea of Adam being the federal head, it's, we need to define what exactly we mean by that. Again, uh, verse number 18 in our text here. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. And so here we see Adam's sin caused God's judgment and condemnation. Jesus Christ's righteousness gave us the free gift of justification and eternal life there. 
Uh, and again, when we talk about the Godhead, Colossians 2.9 speaks of Jesus Christ. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells, the Bible tells us. So again, false theology would tell you that Jesus Christ was 50% man and 50% God. Jesus never one time ever stopped being 100% God. Because if Jesus was less than God, he, he wouldn't be God, right? It's like I'm 5% God, you would say that I'm lesser than God the Father because he's 100%. So Jesus wasn't 50% man, 50% God. Again, deep theological terms for you that you want to write these down. It sounds super smart tomorrow morning at the water cooler. Hypostatic union, right? It's, it's a word that you, know, you throw out in a discussion with You know, when I think about the hypostatic union, it causes me to think of this particular concept and principle. People are like, what are you talking about? Hypostatic union, fancy theological word for something that you already know. Jesus was 100% God, and he was 100% man at the same time. Hypostatic union, okay? Well, wouldn't that make 200%? No, uh, we're dealing in theological math, and it doesn't make sense, okay? Um, three people can make up 100% of the Godhead individually by themselves. Well, does that make, that make 300%? No, it doesn't. Theological math. Was Jesus 33% God? Is, he, is the Holy Spirit 33% God? No, theological math. 100%, 100%, 100% equals 100% God, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. The Bible is a spiritual book beyond our comp comprehension. So when we talk about this idea that Jesus Christ was fully God, and when Jesus acted, he acted on behalf of the Godhead. God the Father required that he come. We were redeemed this morning, as we saw, uh, by God the Father who sent his spirit with Jesus Christ. And so we see the Holy Spirit was at work. And Adam was a representative of the human race, while Jesus Christ was a representative of the Godhead. Both Adam and Jesus' actions affected mankind as a whole. Since their responses to God were opposite, the resulting effects were opposite in nature. Adam disobeyed God. Jesus obeyed God. Adam was sinful. Jesus was righteous. And so because their actions were opposite, the end result of their actions would also be opposite. Adam disobeyed and got death. Jesus obeyed and brought eternal life. Adam disobeyed and brought condemnation. Jesus obeyed and brought justification. So again, what Adam did, Jesus became the anti-Adam, if you will. Hey, the curse of sin was brought upon mankind. The answer was and will always be Jesus Christ is the answer to the curse of sin. And so we see that Adam, uh, Adam's actions, Jesus did the exact opposite of what Adam did. And as a result, received the exact opposite results that Adam received as well. Interesting to note, many people don't uh, recognize this, but in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, the lineage of Christ, Adam is referred to as the son of God. Whereas Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So we see a similarity here. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse number 38. Which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Now, interesting to note here, when we talk about Adam being the son of God, yet God has his only begotten son, is that a contradiction in the Bible? Of course the answer is no, because there's no contradictions in the Bible. That would be like low-hanging fruit, right? Like, hey, look, it says that Adam's the son of God, but Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. 
Jesus Christ was born of a woman, whereas Adam was not. Adam was born from what? Anybody want to help me? Dust of the earth, right? And God breathed in him the breath of life, whereas Mary was conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. And so we see that, that not only was Jesus Christ born of a virgin, he was also born of the Holy Spirit of God at the same time as well. And so we see Jesus Christ was a unique son of God and the fact that he was born of a woman the way that uh, mankind would be born. And so unique relationship that we have there, no, no contradiction whatsoever. Again, this is why we reject the idea of evolution because billions and billions and billions of years, we have to believe what the Bible says. Mankind's nostrils, the breath of life. Uh, and again, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. That's how he was created. But Jesus Christ was born of a woman, uh, the Bible tells us. And so unique from that aspect. Uh, John uh, chapter 1, verse number 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, we see that Adam's life brought death. Jesus' death brings life because of adam we're all going to die one day thanks adam but because jesus died all of us have the opportunity to live for eternity thank you jesus right as we in christ all shall be made alive our church so important your role as an ambassador in christ so important is this Everyone is going to die, and they have no choice. They're going to die, guaranteed. Mortality rate, 100% on life. Nobody has made it out of this thing alive yet, and they won't because everyone will die. But if they are in Christ, they can live for eternity. That's something that they have a choice on, and that's something that you and I can make a difference with. I can't change the fact that everybody's going to die. I can't change the fact that, you know, our neighbor's going to die. I can't change the fact that people in my family are going to die. But I can change the fact of whether or not people have the opportunity to live forever. That's something that I can, can be thrown in the middle of. I talked with a, a man this morning who came uh, at the request of one of his coworkers who goes to our church. I talked with him after uh, the service, and I said, hey, man, did you grow up in church? He goes, I don't. He goes, man, he goes, I, I, was, I was really unsure about Christianity and how all these parts fit together. He goes, but after today's message, understanding like what Jesus did so that the Father wouldn't punish us, like he was like, man, everything makes sense to me now, and I understand Christianity. And I said, man, would you like to know more about that and how to be born again? He goes, no, right now I'm just trying to take it all in. Like this is completely new territory for me. And so we gave him a copy of the book, paid in full, asked him to read it. And I said, man, ask your, your coworker. He knows a lot about the Bible. And he's, man, he's a solid Christian dude. Uh, and he was like, man, thanks, that, that's super helpful. Another guy uh, I talked to after the service this morning came uh, with one of his friends this morning. And I asked him, I, he told me about the church that he attended, you know, church his dad attends, things like that. And I asked him, like, did you grow up in church? He's like, no, not really. And I kind of bounced around churches back and forth. And I said, has there been a time in your life where you've been born again? And he looked at me and he goes, no. And I said, do you know what that means? And he goes, you made it very, very clear this morning. I know exactly what that means. Good. And I said, what would you say is keeping you, now that you understand and know, from taking that next step of putting your faith in Jesus? And he goes, can I be honest with you? I said, please. And he goes, just flat out selfishness. 
I just want to do what I want to do. And he goes, you made it clear today that I can't do what I want to do and follow Jesus. Right. He goes, so I think that's where I'm hung up right now. Good. And you understand what happens when you die. He goes, well, I mean, according to you, I'm going to hell. No, 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 no. Not according to me, you're going to hell. Don't put that on me. I didn't. According to the Bible. He goes, yeah, yeah, according to the Bible. According to the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. It's not what I think where you're going to go. Do you understand that? And he goes, I do, and it really makes sense. Good. And so here's the opportunity for just two guys today, today, that have the opportunity to recognize where they stand with God and should they choose to, can change their eternity. That's the power that is in the gospel. That's what you and I have in our gospel gun belt when we go out. Like, I got ammo. Like, I'm going to load up this week and, and let people know who Jesus is. Because I can't change the fact that you're going to die. You're going to die. Hey, best doctor in the world can patch you up, give you surgery, put you on vitamins, give you the best nutrition plan. You're still going to die and nobody can change that. But I have the, 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 the information at my disposal to change where you spend eternity. Will I invest that in people this week? I hope that you will. And so in Adam, all die. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. That word quickened means made us alive together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You and I were dead in our sins. Whose fault was that? Adam. You and I have three parts, body, soul, spirit. Body is the external manifestation of what we have. Our soul is our seat of our emotions. It's who we are as people. It's your personality. It's what life experiences you've had that make you you. That's your soul. Your soul will live eternally somewhere. All of us are born with a spirit, and our spirit is born dead on arrival. You are dead in your trespasses and sin. All you have to do is just be born, and you are dead spiritually. Your spiritual part is the part that has a connection to God. So you're cut off with a connection to God automatically. And when you die, your soul will stay dead and will be cast away from God because heaven is a place of eternal life, not a place of eternal death. And so the only way that you can have a connection to the Father, the only way that your soul can live somewhere for eternity is that your soul would be made or your spirit would be made faith in Jesus Christ from the day you were saved, your the Father that you never did. And now this new spirit that's alive in you has now been indwelt with the spirit of God. So it's not just like, oh, wow, there's a new part of me. There's a new part of you that has a connection with God, and God lives within you. Crazy thought. What, no, you're not? That your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? Like you now have the spirit of God inside of you that you never had before. Some, uh, one of the guys that, uh, that I led to Christ one time told me, he was just like, Man, every time that I cuss now, I feel bad about it. Ah, that's the Holy Spirit at work. What does that mean? That means God's Spirit is alive in you. And he's like, I know, but I've never been like this before. 
Because a part of you that has been dead your entire life is now made alive. You're seeing things that you've never seen before. You're experiencing things you've never experienced before. You feel guilt and Holy Spirit conviction. The Spirit of God is alive in you. Made alive. Our spirit will be made alive. Death came upon the mem- all members of the first family because their fathers also died. Those who belong to the second family live because the last Adam has been made alive. And so if you're a part of Adam's family, as we took a look at this morning, whose father is the devil, then when you die, you're going to die because your father died. But if you're part of the second family, the family of God, you will live forever because your father is alive forever and his son is risen from the grave and is also alive forever. That's why I really hope, I, I hope that you slow down and meditate and think upon the songs that we sing. Soar we now where Christ has led, alleluia, following our exalted head, alleluia. Man, made like him, like him we rise, where, O death, is now thy sting. All these songs speak of this, and the, the, the little tag chorus that's added to this, he is not dead. He is alive. We have this hope in Jesus Christ. Like These are not just like cute Christian karaoke songs that we sing to get us ready for the preaching. This is worship. This is praise of deep doctrinal truth that we find in Scripture that you can either sing to because it's happened to you or this just doesn't connect with you because you haven't been born again. Like This, this, is, this is a big deal. And so when we talk of being alive in Christ, I'm alive forevermore because my Savior is alive. Adam died. Adam remained dead. My Savior is risen from the grave. He wasn't dead long, three days, and he arose of his own power. And so because my Savior is alive, I now have eternal life as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 45, and so it is written that the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening or made alive spirit. And so Adam was a living soul, but his spirit was dead because he sinned against God. Jesus Christ came to make our spirit alive, to give us a connection with God, to give us not only eternal life, but fellowship with God as well. Adam's disobedience brought condemnation and the curse of sin on mankind. Jesus' obedience brought justification, reversed the curse, and brought righteousness. Verse number 19 in our text tonight. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so we see that Adam blew it for everybody, brought the curse of sin upon us automatically determined us guilty before God, like you didn't have a chance to be innocent. Like like you never had an opportunity to do anything but sin. Uh, who can you thank for that? Adam. Because of Adam, his disobedience passed down the family lineage. And so he brought condemnation and the curse of sin upon mankind, but Jesus Christ on the flip side of that brought justification, the ability to be declared righteous. Adam brought guilt. Jesus brought righteousness. And again, as we've been talking through on Sunday mornings uh, from Romans 5 here, righteousness is better than innocence. 
We were guilty. God didn't just say, okay, you're fine. You, you didn't do it after all. Or you're declared innocent or, you know, we'll, we'll stamp this as paid in full. No, no, no. You're declared innocent plus righteous. Not only are you not a sinner, you're actually really, really, really good with God. That's, righteous is actually better than being declared innocent here. And so Jesus brought that for us by his righteousness. Adam's sin is imputed unto all men, and Jesus' righteousness is imputed to all who believe. Romans chapter 4, verse number 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed unto him, speaking of Abraham, for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised us up from Jesus our Lord from the dead. And so we see imputed, passed along to your account that you did not earn. We have imputed sin from Adam. I didn't do anything to receive it other than be born. And so we see that because of Adam's sin, Adam being again the federal head representative of mankind, his sin is passed on generationally by his seed, Adam's seed. And because of Adam's seed, if you have a father, and you do, you are a sinner, and you receive that sin nature from your father's seed who passed it on from his father's seed. So if the woman will have a seed, like what we see prophesied in Genesis chapter 3, then the one who is born of the seed of the woman cannot have a father because that sin nature would be passed on from the Father. Therefore, Jesus Christ must be born of a virgin conceived with the Holy Spirit for him to have a sinless nature. Otherwise, Adam's sin nature passed upon all men. Christ would have been a sinner like you and I and would have had a chance to, to stop it. So the virgin birth is critical to our faith. If you deny the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. Bottom line. There's certain things that are just non-negotiables. You deny the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus Christ had a dad like you and I have a dad. Jesus Christ would have been born a sinner, and we need to find us a new Savior. But because he was born of the Holy Spirit as his father, and Mary as his mother, then that sin nature did not pass to Jesus Christ. Now, really important that you get this note. That does not mean that Mary was sinless. She was. Mary was a sinner. Uh, regardless of what any religion in the world will tell you, Mary was a sinner like you and I who needed a Savior like you and I. 100%. And so it's important that we note that Mary was not uh, a perpetual virgin. Mary was not a, a non-sinner. Uh, she was not immaculate. She was not perfect uh, in the terms of immaculate, meaning that she uh, was perfect and sinless. Was she a virgin? Absolutely, 100%. Was she sinless? No, she was not 100% guaranteed. Was, was, and here's, here's the other important part. If Mary was a perpetual virgin, that means that Jesus' additional brothers and sisters would also have been without sin as well. Think about that for a second, right? James, who, who wrote the book of James for us. And then James would have also been born of the Holy Spirit, which also meant that James would have been sinless, which means, guess what? Take your pick of a Savior that you want, because sinless sons of God at this point, but that wasn't the case at all. No, the Bible never tells us that Mary was a perpetual virgin. She had a husband, Joseph. <laughs> like, 
can you imagine being Joseph married to a woman who's a virgin for the rest of her life? That would have been a total drag. Uh, but here's the thing. I don't mean to be crude by that. I just mean like you wouldn't have the fullness of a marital relationship, right? Uh, I, I didn't mean it as crude or a sexual joke or anything like that. It's just you wouldn't have the fullness of a marriage relationship. And so in this case here, we see that Adam's sin was passed along to all men. If you have a father, you have a sin nature because Adam's sin was passed upon all men. But Jesus' righteousness is imputed to all that believe. Again, you didn't ask for, for Adam's sin, but it got put on your account anyways. You didn't ask to be made righteous by Jesus. You asked for forgiveness of your sin, but Jesus' righteousness was placed upon your account. I mean, think about it. Nobody in here, when they prayed and asked God to save them, asked for the, the, Jesus' righteousness to be applied to their account. We said, Lord, save me. I'm a sinner. I need your help. But you got, man, that and a whole lot more. And so you not only received the Holy Spirit, you not only received you know, adoption into the family of God, you received righteousness of Jesus Christ, placed upon your account, imputed by Jesus Christ. And so we see that Adam's choice brought isolation, loneliness, violence, and hatred. But Jesus' choice brings true life, fellowship with God, the love of God, and connection to others through him. So this is important to note as well. Sin always isolates you. Always. For every person who's ever been a part of who we call a Baptist church, to gather together with their brothers and sisters and worship Jesus, who left this church because they wanted to indulge in sin, every single one of them has found isolation. 100%. And I don't say that with any joy, it actually hurts my heart. Because you chased after something you thought would bring fulfillment, and in the end, you only got death and destruction. You didn't feel more connected to people and more connected to God. You felt more rejected of God, and you felt more isolated from God's people. Sin always does that. And so we can't chase after sin thinking that we'll find the things that God has given to us because that's what Adam thought. Hey, if I eat of this fruit of this tree, I'll get everything that I want from life. And like, no, 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 you won't. You'll chase after that, and it will only bring destruction and eventually isolation from not only God, but also from God's people as well. And so what Jesus gives us, real deal life, real contentment fellowship with God. We get to experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. We get to experience the love of God through God's people. This is an important thing for you guys to note as well as we think about the love of God through God's people. You as an ambassador of Christ are a carrier of the love of God. You want people to be able to say about you, Man, I really felt the love of God through that guy. Man, that time that I spent with her, I just felt the love of God coming through that person. Now, again, it's not some weird mystical experience or anything like that. It is you and I are representatives of Jesus Christ in plain clothes. When you go to work tomorrow, you're a representative of Jesus Christ in plain clothes, and people should be able to feel the love of God through you. When people come to who we call a Baptist church, they should feel that this is a place where they feel something special. Not just over-the-top hospitality or, hey, how's it going? How are things with you? They should come here and feel the love of God through the people of God. And if they don't, we're not doing something right. 
if people don't feel the love of God through you, you're not doing something right. Because when you remove that, when you become isolated from that, you realize that there's a sense of loss. Again, I'm a firm believer that anyone who's experienced a loving, healthy church family will never be content ever again attending church somewhere. Because there's a difference. Being an integrated part of a loving church family where I've got your back and you've got mine and we love and pray and care for one another and, and encourage one another and step up and have one another's back. Once you experience that, you can't go back to just sitting in a pew and waiting for the 45-minute sermon to be over and going home. You can't. You need to be a part of a church family. Because when you don't have that, you feel a sense of loss. And so God wants that for you. Satan doesn't. Satan wants to isolate you. What's the quickest way to isolate you from God and his people? Sin. 100% of the time. Because every man is drawn away of his own lust when he's enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's finished, brings forth what? 100% of the time. There's no other outcome for that. It's not like, hey, maybe I can play around with this sin and the end result will actually be happiness and contentment. It's a, no. The Bible clearly says the only thing that sin can result in is death. So three final thoughts and we're done. First of all, we're no longer slaves to sin because Jesus has liberated us. Whew. Praise God. He, get this. You don't have to sin. You don't have to. You're no longer a slave to that. According to Romans chapter 6, which I can't wait to get to on Sunday mornings. It's just taking me a minute, all right? Romans chapter 6 says, okay, maybe more than a minute. <laughs> Romans chapter 6 says, I'm dead to that. I don't have to sin. I'm dead to that. I don't have to indulge in that. I'm dead to that. That no longer has power over me. You know, I say, well, well Pastor, my sin's got its claws in deep. Good. Then let me help you declaw your sin so that you can have the freedom that God promised you that you would have. Because you don't have to live that way anymore. You've been liberated. You have power over your sin, Romans 6 says. And here's the thing. The only reason why you remain in your sin is because you choose to remain there. I would never choose this ever in a million years. Then be liberated from it. You've already been set free. Start living like it. And, and again, if you need help, I'm not, I'm not condemning anybody. If you need help being liberated from your sin, I'm your guy. Like, I can point you and I can show you the way. You know, I might not like the way, but I'll show it to you. Because you no longer have to live under the curse of sin because Jesus has set you free. Here's a question that I have for you. If sin... I'm sorry, if such a great price was paid to liberate me from my sin, why would I find pleasure there? <laughs> I had a family member one time make fun of me because our kids weren't allowed to watch R-rated movies. <laughs> you realize that when your kids grow up, they're going to watch whatever they want to anyways, right? You realize that when your kids grow up, they're going to watch all those movies and, and watch all those shows and listen to all that music anyways, right? You're only delaying the inevitable. Hmm, okay. And then this, this person who claimed to be a Christian, that's just legalism. Setting rules and, and, and laws that the Bible doesn't say that. Show me the Bible that says thou shalt not watch an R-rated movie. Well, I can't point to that, but I can say I'll set no wicked thing before mine eyes. You know, there's principles in the Bible that tell you that. And no lie, this is what the person said. Jesus died on the cross to set you free from rules and regulations, and you just brought them all back. What? Here's my response. 
do you mean Jesus died on the cross so that my kids can watch R-rated movies? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying that Jesus set me free from all the rules of religion. I don't think that means what you think it means. Jesus didn't die to liberate me from my sin so that I can be free to indulge my sin. That's like setting you free only to put you back in bondage again. That doesn't make any sense at all. If Jesus shed his blood on the cross for my sin, I will not be entertained by such sin. My wife and I, when we were young in our faith and incredibly foolish, we used to indulge in what at the time was new, new reality TV, unscripted television. It was new at the time. I'm, I'm talking like, man, like late 90s, early 2000s, right? And like we found all these shows of these people doing these absolutely heinously foolish things that we ourselves would never do, right? Uh, I mean, like the real world on MTV was popular. You get a bunch of uh, strangers and they live in an apartment together. What happens? They fight like cats and dogs and they're sexually inappropriate and they have, you know, sexual relationships with multiple people and they go out and get hammered drunk and fall asleep and then pass out in the, the, the gutter of a sidewalk. This is a blast to watch right? Because I would never do this thing. I don't know anybody who would behave this way, but it's so much fun to watch it. Until you actually read the Bible, and the Bible says that God's wrath comes upon these things and also those who have pleasure in them that do them. It's the end of Romans chapter (laughs) 1. And no lie, I read that and I was just like, (gasps) like, have you ever read the Bible and like took your breath away? Like, oh my soul, I think I'm doing that, right? That was me 100%. I think I'm taking pleasure in other people's sin. And I think that's a sin. What? Up to that point, I was just like, well, I'm not doing those things. So I mean, it's not, not a big deal for me. You know, uh, for, when I was in the military, I loved going to the bars because you would see people just get blackout drunk and do the dumbest things in the world. And it was highly entertaining until you realize that you're indulging in the sins of other people and God will hold you just as responsible for that. Man, that was a big-time wake-up, light-bulb moment for me. That was just like, we can't live like this anymore. God's going to hold us responsible for enjoying the sins of other people and finding entertainment there. If Jesus was willing to pay such a high price for your sin, why do you go back and find pleasure there? We need to see our sin as offensive to God. That God was willing to publicly humiliate and execute his own son to deliver us from this. God forbid that we have pleasure in it. And so I need to be utterly disgusted with my own sinfulness. I need to make war upon my flesh. I can never get comfortable and just lie down in my sin. This is just how God God made me. No, God didn't. God didn't make you to be a slave to sin. God sent his son to set you free from it. Finally, this new life that Jesus gives is available to all who believe. Who do I know that needs to know? Again, I have to confess, probably the first two decades of my life, I spent with the mentality of, well, I'm going to heaven. I'm glad for that. Too bad for everybody else. Now, whether I would come out and overtly say that or not, probably not. But by the way that I lived, 100%. Like, hey, I'm good. Like, if you've got problems, that's on you. Hey, if, if you don't know about Jesus, that's on you. Hey, if you don't care about the gospel, that's on you. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're ambassadors for Christ, and we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's my job to tell people how to find Jesus. It's my job to help people be liberated. 
It's my job to see people that are in bondage and give them the helping hand to get out of bondage if they want it. Now, again, just like the two guys who I talked to this morning. Hey, you understand what Jesus did for you? Crystal clear. Are you ready to believe that and receive it? Not yet. Okay. Do you know where the help's at when you need it? I gave both of them books. I'm going to continue to pray for them. I'm going to follow up on both of them. But I can't force you to follow Jesus, but I can, can give you the key that will unlock every door that's in your life. I can help liberate you from the bondage that you've been in your entire life if you're willing to receive it. And so, hey, again, there has to be practical application when we look at these types of Christ. I don't want to be like, ooh, isn't it cool that Adam did this and Jesus did this? Ooh, isn't it cool that this and this? The Bible is so much more than ain't that cool. The Bible is, hey, here's how this changes your life. And so Adam brought death. Do you want to remain in that death? I don't think that you do. You want to find life in Christ. And so, well, well, I'm saved. No, when you continue to play around with sin, the end it result is death. Alienation from God, alienation from God's people, alienation from the joy of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. Get this, when you and I sin against God, we forfeit the, the fruit of the Spirit. We not only give up love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, we also hurt the Holy Spirit inside of us. You're never going to have joy. Life is around the corner. Life the way that you want it. With that fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in your life and the life of people around you, that's what you crave, that's what you desire, and that's what you want. You don't want sin. And so three tips of practical application here. If you've got sin in your life, man, identify it. Now, again, this is not like, oh, I, I, I think maybe I had one too many chicken nuggets for lunch today. I think I have gluttony. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there's sin in your life that you know is offensive to God, and you're just like, it's okay, God will forgive me. Man, make that Christ. People that you know that need to know Jesus, get them to church. Get them a gospel tract. Or, or events like Open House Sunday. We don't do it to have a big attendance. We do a concerted effort to get people in the door to hear about Jesus. Look, Sunday morning of Open House Sunday, I'm not going to be like, hey, the ark is a type of Jesus Christ. Isn't that really cool? No, no, no. Sunday morning, Open House Sunday, here's Jesus and here's why you need him. 100%. So again, Open House Sunday isn't like, hey, let's get a big attendance day. That would be awesome. It's get people in the door to tell them about Jesus so that they can live under the freedom that we found. But that's not just an October 15th thing. That should be an every Sunday thing. That should be an everyday thing for us as Christians. Let's live that type of life this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.